May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, and the actions of our lives be always acceptable in your sight. O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Good morning. God, it is so wonderful to be here this morning, and I, I have to tell you, aside from the weather and the fact that this isn't a Gothic cathedral and uh, the fact that I'm not in Cleveland, this feels like I am home, having served for nearly 20 years at your sister cathedral, Trinity, in the heart of downtown Cleveland. I'm, I'm very grateful to your bishop, Jennifer, my, my old friend, for uh, making this possible, and to Troy, your dean, for his invitation, and to Holly, your canon, for this extraordinary hospitality. This, this is a place that feels like cathedral to me, from the, the way you do liturgy to everything I've read about your congregation and your music programs, and it is just good to be in, in this sort of setting again. One of the things that Troy and I discovered that we have in common is a, a, an affection for um, a hymn by John Bell of the Iona community called The Summons. And my hunch is that probably you, you have sung it here on more than one occasion. It says, will you come and follow me if I but call your name? Will you go where you don't know and never be the same? Will you let my love be shown? Will you let my name be known? Will you let my life be grown in you and you in me? I think that song expresses the challenge and the promise of this morning's gospel reading. Following his baptism and sojourn in the wilderness, following the arrest of his cousin John, Jesus withdrew into the region of Galilee to make his home in Capernaum, a sleepy little fishing town by the sea. However, this base of operations was near Sephoris, which was a bustling, sophisticated commercial city. It was a seat of Roman imperial power, and thus it was a place of economic and political tension. And Jesus is soon to be proclaimed prophetic message of God's realm would run counter to the predominant culture of the region and the imperial power that ruled it. According to the Gospel of Matthew, with Jesus' arrival in Galilee, those who sat in the region and shadow of death, on them light had dawned. Whether they knew it or not, Jesus was about to bring profound upheaval to their world. For both the poor and the rich, the dispossessed and the powerful, the oppressed and the oppressor. Jesus' message was nothing short of revolutionary. 
Matthew's narrative presents a vivid portrait of Jesus' vision as a rain shower that would wash away unclean spirits, drown out oppression, open the floodgates of freedom, heal the wounds of oppression, feed the hungry, quench the thirsty, welcome the unwanted, restore sight to the blind, and raise the dead to new life. The approach of this downpour of God's grace called for repentance, a complete reorientation of life. Umbrellas would not suffice. Life jackets were in order, and they could only be found on the ship of fools that Jesus was about to commandeer. And for those who chose to crew this fishing boat, the ones who would follow as disciples, his vision and his ministry would demand an abandonment of everything that they held near and dear. This morning, we meet Jesus' first four disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They were commercial fishermen, minding their own business when Jesus came along and interrupted their lives. Now, think about this. Jesus called four family guys with spouses, children, parents, and in-laws who relied on them for their daily bread. Out of the blue, a stranger walked by and summoned them to abandon everything and follow him into the unknown, and they did. They said yes. They accepted this absurd invitation to walk away from their livelihoods, to desert their families and follow him. They readily joined this new fishing expedition into what over the course of time would become a life-consuming adventure on the high seas. Have you ever wondered what caused these ordinary guys living ordinary lives to accept this extraordinary call? Was it Jesus' charismatic style, his charm, authority, and directness? Were they caught off guard and they said yes without thinking? You know those moments in your own life when we get ourselves into something before we even know what's happening. Were they bored? They were looking for a way to escape the dullness of their life. Perhaps it was the sense of adventure that appealed to them. Maybe these guys had something to prove to themselves. And here was the perfect opportunity, a biblical version of Outward Bound or Moby Dick. Did these first disciples believe they were going on a vacation or an adventure for a few hours or days or even a couple of weeks and then they would return back home, back to their ordinary lives? Did they think they were going to become heroes? That they would save the world, lead a peasant revolution, or conquer the Roman army? Maybe they were caught up in the apocalyptic energy of the times 
And they believed that this would be the way to ensure their salvation, their place in heaven. Or was it something else? Something inexplicable that just happened that day on the shores of Galilee. Perhaps when Jesus looked into their eyes and extended his extraordinary invitation, something incredibly holy pierced their souls and enlivened their spirits in a way that they could not comprehend nor resist. You know, the gospel writer doesn't tell us what the disciples thought when they first met Jesus. He leaves that up to our imagination. And that makes sense to me. Because I believe that God invites each of us to follow in ways that we can understand and hopefully accept. It might take a while for us to catch on, but God is persistent and is usually able to find a little place in every one of us that we can't seem to resist. You know, God found me once on a cold winter day in January in a McDonald's on 42nd Street in New York City, literally 33 years ago today. I was minding my own business when a voice that was not my own but coming inside of me spoke in words that I could not ignore or negate. The voice called me by name, identified itself as God, confronted me with my own issues and my own private wounds. You know the stuff inside of you that nobody else knows? The voice was naming all of that. The voice contradicted my deeply held first semester seminary theology. The voice answered my questions and, yes, called me, invited me to ordain ministry in the Episcopal Church. When I ask, why are you talking with me? The voice said, because you've been asking for it. It was true. I had been begging, even challenging God to be clear with me, to help me sort out my identity and my vocation. And here I was, sitting in a McDonald's in the middle of Manhattan, having a private conversation with an invisible voice. Probably no different than a lot of the street people that were sitting in that McDonald's. I said, if you're inside of me, then how can you be God? I'll never forget the response. The voice said, what's so special about me is that I'm inside of everyone and anyone who wants to know me. And if the world would hear and follow me, in whatever way you're called to do so, my realm on earth would come. My shalom, my hope for the kingdom of peace would become a reality. 
few days later, one of my professors in seminary said that faith is a two-way street. It is both a gift from God, and it is our decision to accept the gift. I didn't know if I had talked with God, but in a letter to a friend I wrote, I don't know if I talk to God, but if I don't accept the voice of God on faith now, I don't think I'm ever going to get a more direct message. And so I accepted the voice, and I followed it, and I became a part of the great ship of fools we call the Episcopal Church. I ran with the dream of God for my life through some three decades of ministry. 33 years later, God found me again, this time in the middle of the ocean, months after I had been diagnosed with a rare form of early onset dementia known as frontotemporal degeneration. FTD, as it's known, has nothing to do with flowers. Rather, it's a complicated brain disease that has no cure and usually affects middle-aged adults, inflicting a progressive decline in communications, mobility, behavior, and daily functioning with an average life expectancy of seven to 10 years after diagnosis. As you can imagine, FTD ripped apart the fabric of my life. It disrupted my vocation and it confronted the very essence of my identity. And so for months I sequenced through the Kubler-Ross stages of grief like a washing machine cycle over and over and over again. And after taking early retirement, my spouse Emily and I needed to escape. So we traveled to Europe by way of a transatlantic cruise. And for nearly 4,000 nautical miles, I tried to come to terms with it all. And as we passed through the Strait of Gibraltar, navigating between the continents of Africa and Europe, under the full moon of both Holy Week and Passover, something inside of me shifted. And I found myself, for reasons that I cannot explain, ready to face this new chapter of my life. I wanted to transform this interruption from a death sentence to a pilgrimage, from an intrusion to an invitation. I was determined that I wanted to live what I'd been preaching for over 30 years, that out of pain comes joy, out of brokenness comes wholeness, out of death comes new life. In what felt like an eternity to me, but a millisecond to God, I saw the dark clouds of my diagnosis pass under the moonlight and over the water, and I heard the voice of God calling me to find the meaning and the grace and the gifts and the wisdom from a life impacted by dementia and to speak about it from the inside out in an effort to destigmatize this condition 
which is going to affect so many of us without shame or blame. Like Peter and Andrew and James and John, I've been summoned to join a new ship of fools and to sail into a new uncertain future. And like those first disciples, I've accepted this call and I've begun what has become a challenging but fulfilling itinerant ministry. I remain convinced that God's call comes to all of us in such different ways. It is often unexpected and frightening because it demands that we abandon and let go of so much. And at the same time, it is hopeful as it calls us out of darkness into light and out of the shadow of death into the opportunities of new life. Lately, I've been pondering the darkness. I'm not talking about dementia or even the lack of sunlight during the winter in the Midwest. I've been wondering about our nation's darkness and our collective shadow of death. And I can't help but ask, what is God calling us to abandon? I don't know for certain, but I believe that God wants and needs us to abandon our old narrative and to fashion a new one grounded in justice, love, and mercy for all. Is this message new? No! Heavens no! The prophets have been saying it for centuries, and Jesus proclaimed it in word and action. Is this work easy? No. But it is life-giving to those who do it. Is this summons to abandon our old ways frightening? Absolutely. But it's also exciting. Is this reorientation of our lives necessary? You bet. So this morning I ask you, will you abandon whatever is holding you captive in the dark? Will you strap on your life jacket and plunge into the waters of the unknown? Will you sail on a ship of fools bound for glory, and will you invite others to come along? Because it promises to be the cruise that you will never forget. In the name of the God who loves us all, comes to us by many ways, speaks to us in many voices, and calls us on many roads. Amen.